Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and with me for a special live episode from the Labour Party Conference in Liverpool is my colleague, Caitlin Doherty, as well as two brilliant guests, Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary Peter Kyle and the Shadow Minister for Climate Change, Kerry McCarthy. So I think the best place to start probably is with uh, Keir Starmer's speech delivered Tuesday afternoon. Uh, he sort of said now is a, a Labour movement, and I think he sort of tried to reflect a, a growing confidence that we've all picked up this week within the party, that Labour can go on and, and win the general election. We'll start with you, Peter. What was your kind of take on, on the speech, and where did you watch it, and how did you, how did you feel it went down? Excuse me for my throat, it's a bit worn out at the moment, but <clears throat> so just explain... From all the, from all the clapping and cheering at exactly, the Starmer speech. Exactly, and also explaining and meeting and listening to people. The speech today was remarkable because it's confidence, it's content, the power with which Keir asserted the message. The challenge we've always had since Keir took over is, is how we meet the public halfway. What Keir did today was... He didn't just meet the public halfway, he went to their doorsteps with our message. You know, the Labour Party has got a very clear vision. Nobody can be in any doubt about the seriousness of our project. Nobody can be in any doubt that we are rooting ourselves in, in where the mainstream aspirations of our country is, that we have ideas that meet the scale of the challenge that's before us, but those ideas are also sensible ideas. They're big, bold, but sensible ideas and they are deeply rooted in where the country believes mainstream politics should be today in this big, challenging moment. Yeah, absolutely. It felt like it was a real you know, chance to try and present Labour as a credible government in waiting against the kind of backdrop of a Tory party in crisis as the economy kind of crumbles off the back of this tax-cutting and, and high-borrowing statement. Kerry, how did you see the speech in those terms? won't surprise you to hear that I agree with Peter, but I I think the challenge has always been for us to get that balance right between being serious and showing, you know, that we we will cost things properly, that we won't be, we won't squander public money and so on, but also to inspire at the same time. And that can be quite a difficult balancing act. And I think we got it absolutely right. I mean, obviously, you know, a shadow climate change minister was delighted that we've had green policies at the heart of our conference offer. You know, it was up there in the slogan, a fairer, greener future. And that just sums it up perfectly because We've got to address the climate emergency, but we've also got to address the cost of living crisis. And the fact that we, I think, demonstrated very clearly, and it was very joined up. It wasn't just like a leader speech that was separate from everything else that went on. Rachel picked up these themes, Ed Miliband, Johnny Reynolds all picked up these themes, that you can, as as Ed said, it's cheaper to save the planet than it is to destroy it. Right. And making that case, and I think in the past we've been a little bit nervous because it's whether the country actually is willing to come with us because they do feel that maybe going green's more expensive it's a luxury thing cost of living crisis they can't afford to do it but making clear that a you know renewables are nine times cheaper than gas but also there are jobs there could be industrial transformation in some of our more deprived communities that have been hit by the decline in manufacturing just so many opportunities and you know the future part of it is you know that vision as to what we yeah i loved the bit in Keir's speech where he said Imagine that you're at the end of the first term of a Labour government and this is what we've done. Right. And I thought that worked really well in sort of saying to people, you know, things can be different. A government can achieve things. And as you say, against the backdrop of what's been happening in the... Even the last week has been quite astounding in terms of what the Tory party have been doing. Absolutely. Bring Caitlin in. You know, it felt that... um the Tories have kind of a, a real shift to the right with last week's statement. Kind of, there's a real ideological divide, and it felt as though Keir Starmer today he even said, you know, we're a party of the centre ground. Felt 
that there was this large bit of political map which has now been opened up and it did feel as though Labour were making their pitch today to try and step into that. I think one thing that's quite important to say is if you take a little bit of a step back and sort of look at the last three months, I know we've said this a lot over like the last five or six years, but there have really been some phenomenal news stories sort of since May due time. We've got a new government, we've got a new head of state, you know, we've had this huge fiscal intervention and we're barely two and a half weeks into the new political term. Yeah, do remind me, yeah. <laughs> and there, you're right, there does seem to have been, that was certainly the pitch that Keir Starmer was trying to make today, if I remember correctly. He even made an explicit reference to that about trying to, you know, occupy that centre ground. But there were a couple of things that really stuck out to me that I'm fairly sure in previous eras may well have been the same sort of lines that may well have been policies that other parties were looking to pitch you know trying to pitch as the party of home ownership seven uh, aiming for 70 percent home ownership and the work that they were doing with businesses and uh, scrapping business rates and committing to work with business to you know generate jobs and with the green economy plans so it did definitely feel like an ideological pitch to the center which i think given the context of the last few weeks does seem like quite a stark comparison at the moment to the Conservatives. Yeah, and, and, and I suppose the centre at the moment is Tory voters, if you look at the 2019. So it was perhaps a, a pitch to Tory voters. Peter, do you think that was there enough in there to make you think that Labour can do that at the next election? I don't think it was so much a technical pitch at different voting cohorts. I hope that today's speech and this conference will be seen as the moment we left the Tories behind. We, for so long, have been defining ourselves against the Tories. Today, we're always answering, what would we do about what the Tories did yesterday? Yeah. But the Tories have vacated the centre ground of politics. The Labour Party has just dug deeper into it. We've occupied it. We've shown that we actually are comfortable on it. And what Keir did today, don't forget, was only mention Liz Truss once. He only mentioned Liz Truss once. We barely mentioned the Tories today, uh, other than a couple of digs. What we were doing was setting out Labour's vision for a better Britain. Next week, you watch, they'll be mentioning Labour and they'll be mentioning Keir and they'll be mentioning all of the front bench figures. They'll be trying to do us in. They are now following us. Their mission is to pull us back because we're out there in the front. Uh, And I think and I hope that what we did today was just leave the Tories behind. And I think that was the objective of Keir's speech. I think that's the objective of our conference. We couldn't have had our conference that we're having this year without the conference we had last year. It shows that Keir actually is a strategic leader. He stays the course. He thinks very deeply about the future. He has a vision for the future, and he takes steps towards it. And very, very few political leaders of any party in any era have been able to take the strategic pathway towards power and then hopefully into power that Keir has shown the capacity to do so. So I think today has been an exhilarating day for lots of different reasons. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you talked about that it felt like it was a culmination of some of the announcements that were made. Obviously, Louis Hay, the Shadow Transport Secretary, talked about rail nationalisation. There was one big policy, although, in Starmer's speech today, which was about this British energy company. It's obviously not full nationalisation. It's about kind of energy security. Kerry, with your brief, how did you 
did you welcome that? Someone sat behind one of our reporters who was punching the air like they sort of <laughs> yeah. like Starmore had scored a 93rd minute winner. Were you quite as enthusiastic when you heard that policy? Or? Well, well, I didn't know about it in advance. <laughs> so I got my big That's... briefing note. And I've been going through all these fringes and sort of like, I'm only allowed to mention that Tuesday afternoon, right, okay. you know, it's like that. So, but yeah, I mean, it's really exciting. We've got this 28 billion. I think it's now called the Green Prosperity Plan rather than the Climate Investment Pledge. But that that was announced by Rachel at last year's conference. This week, we fleshed it out with the Clean Power by 2030 plan on Sunday. Rachel talking about the Sovereign Wealth Fund, you know, investing in gigafactories, renewable ready ports, net zero clusters, and all sorts of things. That was was yesterday, and Ed spoke about that. And then we had GB Energy today, which will be there to actually spearhead that, you know, what they call the sprint towards renewables. And as I said earlier, renewables are cheaper than gas. We've got to decouple them from the the gas prices. It gives us energy security, gives us cheaper energy. And it sort of plays the role, as he said, you know, it's it's ridiculous that you've got Swedish state-owned entities, even like in Bristol, they're involved in our clean energy project there. It's Vattenfall, which is Swedish-owned. You've got EDF um, that is French-owned. Why on earth aren't we doing something like that? And it's not it's not even really like ideological. It's not just like, you know, public versus private and that. It's just absolutely the sensible thing to do. And I think that's the difference between what struck me with the announcements from the Conservatives on Friday. It seemed so ideological yeah. and very impulsive. And it's just, no, we're against this. We're, we must be pro this. We must be, you know, very sort of cheap level politics. And you saw that Quasi Quartet wouldn't get the... It, yeah, <laughs> it's quite expensive. Yeah. Like billion well, yeah, pounds yeah, no, and going, no, up, but, going up every hour but, as well. Yeah, yeah but... but you know, the fact that he wouldn't get the OBR to actually do the costing of his budget because he knew that the numbers didn't stack up. But it wasn't like they tried to do their homework, tried to make the sums work. It was just pure ideology. And Labour has sometimes in the past fallen into that trap. But, you know, I think the contrast couldn't be greater this week. Also, you know, in the context of the way the opinion polls are moving, I mean, after the 2019 defeat it was seen as an absolute uphill battle. I think most people thought it would be a two-term project to try to get back into government if they were realistic. But now it, it just... I don't think we're being wildly optimistic. I think it seems eminently feasible, partly because the Tories are self-destruct mode and doing some incredibly destructive things, but also bold, because Labour's got... Term. Bold, yeah. yes, yes. Um, what, what did Sir Humphrey used to say? Yeah, you very know, bold minister. Yes, very, very bold, bold minister. Yeah. And, or interesting, yeah. But, but also, you know, we've got our act together. But it's important to say, because we can see, we can now see the finish line for an election victory, that doesn't mean that we're going to be com- you know, overconfident or arrogant or take it for granted, but it's very motivational. Uh, and what I can tell you from around the Shadow Cabinet table that what Keir is doing in this moment is he's doubling down on the work and effort he expects from people around the Shadow Cabinet and our teams, which is probably why I'm losing my voice. <laughs> he has said that he wants you know, stakeholder engagement to be doubled. If we're going to write notes for him, he wants to make sure that it is double, triple sourced, that all of the evidence is you know, double checked, that we're all checking each other's work. He wants the detail to be doubled down on. And this is a really good sign. You know, he is driving us hard. He is not taking his foot off the accelerator. What you saw today was a leader that's in control, that is leading his his party, that is not being defined by the opposition, the Tories. He's not being knocked off course by anyone. He is listening. You can see our policies were so informed by our stakeholders and the relationships that we have within the Labour movement. But he was leading it, and the party is in control of it. 
Uh, these are the sorts of signs and signals that the public look to for a party that will put for a party that will put their interests first. And and also the public, they want us to put our values and our principles to task for their priorities. Today, what you saw Keir talking about and what you've seen right through this conference, cost of living, crime, NHS and public services. These are the things that are connecting with the lived experience of most voters right now. Mm. We have lots of other things we want to achieve in office, but every single resident and voter will look at the party this week and they will know that their priorities are, are our priorities as a party. So important. And in a couple of days' time, they will have another party to compare that to. They will see what their priorities are. And right now, their priorities are looking like an undergraduate essay that was written 20 years ago and is still the lodestar by which those people are delivering it. They are pickled in ideology. They cannot get out of the pickle jar that they've got themselves into and they are going to double down on it because they don't know any different. Returning to the point that you made, Kerry, about the polls and then also probably in the same way, the point that you just made, Peter, about comparison, we obviously had that big poll in the Times this morning, you know, suggesting Labour on a 17-point lead. I think it was one of the biggest leads that YouGov had recorded in history. How confident are you that that is voters moving towards Labour rather than voters being turned off by the Conservatives after 12 months of headlines? Well, firstly, we have the evidence of the 2019 election. Just because they have a corrupt, lying Prime Minister doesn't mean that by de facto, that voters are going to come across to us. The second thing is, we have another example of when we were ahead in the polls and lost an election. We've had several of those. In the run-up to the 2015 election, we were 15 points ahead, and then we lost the election. So we take nothing for granted. But there's a big difference at the moment which does motivate us. In the run-up to 2015, Labour was ahead, but we were behind on key metrics. We were behind on security, defence, law and order, and the economy, we were 20 points behind. Uh, and also, I'm sorry to say so bluntly, but we, it was the truth, Ed was behind David Cameron on who would make the best prime minister. But overall, people didn't like the Tories, they kind of liked us, but they didn't quite like us on the essentials. Right now, Keir polls ahead of both Boris Johnson when he was prime minister and his trust on who would make the best prime minister. But we, are, we are ahead on security, defence, crime, law and order, we're ahead, we're ahead by two points on the economy for the first time in almost 15 years. And we're ahead on public services. So we're getting the fundamentals right. So it, it's a bit more embedded than before. These are also things that are being backed up in our election wins that Keir outlined in his speech today, right across the country in locals. We're getting the fundamentals right in a way we haven't in the past. That's what gives us an optimism. And polls, we take them for what they are. I spoke to Keir this morning and he, he said, you know, that poll yesterday, we were having a good day at conference. I'm really excited by the energy that we've got here. And then suddenly that poll landed. He goes, it gives you a really good boost, doesn't it? Yeah, do you think there's been enough of a, of a retail offer? I thought that the, the green growth idea, it seems to have gone down quite well. But you know, can you explain essentially okay, what, what green growth really means? And is it enough of a kind of a retail offer to explain to the voters why it's kind of worth going down, why that's the centrepiece of the plan and why it's part of the, the slogan for the whole conference? Well, if, if you look at one example, you know, energy bills. I mean, there's been a short-term fix from the government, although there's a very clear dividing line in the 
the government will be passing on the cost to the taxpayers of the future. We think there should be a windfall tax on the profits of the oil and gas companies. But in terms of you know, retrofitting homes, so part of this £28 billion that's been pledged includes £6 billion a year for a decade to retrofit 19 million homes. They're saying on average that could bring bills down by about £400, but for the worst, the ones that the EPCF rating, it could save them £1,000 a year. And we know know, it's the poorest people that are going to be living in the poorest quality, quite often private rented sector accommodation. So that is something that absolutely affects them. But I think they also, they want certainty about the jobs of the future. If you're somebody that's you know looking to leave school get an apprenticeship or whatever we need to pull together all those elements of the you know it can't just be left to the private sector can't just be left to local government we need to pull together how you achieve that shift to green jobs but i think potentially that's pretty exciting for people to sort of think there's business opportunities in you know whether it's retrofitting whether it's heat pump engineers whether it's uh, some of the more high-tech end of things um you know building wind turbines or whatever i think there's there's there is huge potential but you're you're right that in terms of actually convincing people that it's going to benefit them in each area whether you're talking about transport policy whether you're talking about housing even if you're talking about you know some of the behavior change things to to do with diets or whatever there's all conversations that you've got to have but it's about establishing your credibility both with business in terms of that certainty, consistency of approach, but your credibility with the electorate, that you're not doing it to try to foist some metropolitan agenda on them. You're trying to do it because you think it's the best thing for the country and the best thing for them. And I think we've established that at this conference this week, but the task is to take it forward. Just to pick you up on on the brief point on the premise of the question, most residents, most voters at the moment are concerned with the cost of living crisis none of them will be in any doubt about what a response to that is. So, yes, having the headline, Green Affairer, Country for is our future for our, is our strapline for the conference. This is a strapline for our conference, which feeds into one element of how we project ourselves into the future. But if you're looking at, for example, people in Northern Ireland, people in Northern Ireland have had a 30% reduction in their disposable income in the last year. This is impacting people in a profound way. They see overwhelmingly that we have the solution that matches the scale of the challenge that individuals are making. So, yes, there's layer upon layer. So to take one aspect of it and say that that's the only thing people are going to judge us on in the years ahead, you know, we are taking steps and we are laying the foundations for a platform for government, and this will be one part of it, but it's not the only part of it. Everything that Kerry's just said is about how we will be reformulating and investing in the economy of the future. Just picking up on one thing you said earlier, you talked about about conference being a bit more sort of professional. Caitlin, have you picked up having been to conferences before? What's the kind of the mood and kind of the attitudes you've, you've seen? Is it, is it a more professional party perhaps than, than than previous administrations? The caveat I would give is that my first full set of conferences was last year, so I maybe haven't done as okay. many cycles through the conferences as some colleagues and I'm sure some other people in this room. The way that I've been describing it to people is it feels like everybody's sitting up straight and is on their best behaviour. That sort of has summed up the last three days. There are some big corporate sponsors here in the exhibition hall, which feels like quite a marked difference compared to other years. It seems quite a lot slicker. And personally, I would probably say that it feels like perhaps members of the Shadow Cabinet and MPs are being, I don't know, I feel like there have been fewer instances of seeing them in the bars when people have maybe the casual conversations, maybe (laughs) careful is the, maybe careful is the word to say. Um, So there does feel like there has certainly been a... It's because we're all out there working. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
but, but my, my first party conference was 1993. Yeah. And I've been to every single one bar one since then. And it obviously, I mean, 1993, by autumn of 1992, with the whole exit from the ERM and so on, Labour was on, on the way towards power. We knew that we were heading into government. So it was obviously a, a really good vibe. But there was quite a lot of partying as well, as it says. Fun. For quite a long time, it's been a pretty depressing experience coming yeah. to party conference. 12 years in opposition will and, do that. Yeah, and quite a lot of infighting and everything. And this is the first one I've been to for a long time where it's actually felt not just something that I do out of a sense of duty. You know, I go to conference just because that's what I do. But I've I've actually felt invigorated and inspired. I think quite a lot of people are feeling feeling like that. There is a professionalism, but there's also a joy. There's a, there's a happiness that I've seen. I've seen more smiling faces at this conference than I have at anyone since probably 2006, seven. The word I was about to use was enthusiastic. Oh. Um, both the both members and. MPs, you know, we as journalists often are sent around and, you know, saying, get the opinions of MPs, get the opinions of members, get the opinions of anybody that will stand and talk to you for 30 seconds. You ask the questions like, what do you think of XYZ policy? Do you think Labour are going to win the next election? And the answer has quite quickly and unequivocally been yes. And now I know obviously the obvious caveat is a party membership would always like to think that their party would win the next general election. But there has been a distinct lack of but or if we do sort of caveats to those conversations this time around, it feels like the membership are on board with what is being put forward. Do you think we're going to win? That's not my place to say. <laughs> in, in that spirit of enthusiasm, I wondered if, you know, now that, you know, Starmer's speech is done, you can slightly let your head. I was going to ask what your sort of karaoke song might be if you're out this evening, but obviously, Peter, it's unlikely I think you're going to be able to, to perform one. So, Kerry, I'm going to ask you, you like what your... Star It'll or have something to be a Neil Young song it, yeah. or something, wouldn't it? Kerry, <laughs> <laughs> what's your karaoke song of choice? I do not do karaoke. And it's actually oh, I something I bear a little bit of a grudge against Ed Miliband because yeah. Lynn Brown, I was part of the same intake as him. We call ourselves the 555 intake because it was 5th of May 2005. And I I turned up and it was Lynn Brown was putting on a, a part of a karaoke and Ed and I met at the front door and he says I don't do karaoke and I said no I don't and I said so we'll be the two that sit it out and within five minutes he was up there <laughs> <laughs> right, well, so was, I was like what's Ed's, what's Ed's song of choice then we need to know I think the public no, I needs think to know he was, I think he was doing backing vocals enthusiastic <laughs> backing vocals it might have been would it have been living on a prayer <laughs> I don't know Less. but all I know is that what, I was what year was this less said about this, that the better yeah, I suppose. This, was, this was only a couple of years into okay. us being MPs but yeah there's people like I mean Ed Balls was like always hogged the karaoke right. he used to delete other people's songs that he was <laughs> in there and um, he you know, Mr Brightside was a thing him and him and Vet do Endless Love and so on but oh, I thought gosh. I had an ally in Ed I thought there was one other person Ed Miliband I thought there was going to be one other person that we would sit it out and be the boring ones in the corner and instead it was just me okay that's fantastic let's <laughs> probably wrap it up there and we'll move to questions hi uh, I'm Adam Payne political editor at Politics Home I know that the UK Labour Party has been in dialogue with the Australian Labour Party about strategy, economic policy. Keir obviously visited Germany recently. I know that David Lammy has a good relationship with the US Democrats. So the party seems to be looking at international case studies, global friends, counterparts for inspiration and ideas. Are you two able to talk to us about what's going on there? What have you learned from those briefings, those conversations you've had with your you know, sister parties, friends in Europe and elsewhere. Yes, you're right that we are doing that. and You would expect us to as well. I was over in Washington in March and spent a lot of time with the Democrats talking about, you know, their experience. Uh, the interesting thing about them was they were fighting populism. So there was a, there's a lot that we should be working together in. 
Morgan's been to Australia. We've had a team that's also been embedded with the SPD in, in Germany during their campaign. And there was some huge learning from the SPD. There's, there's something to learn. And there is something that context explains differences as well. So our job is to make sure that we get those two things right. And there's been a lot of experiences, as you say, Australia, Germany, and the United States. But for me, it's more than just learning from where people win. If we go back to the 90s and the, and the early 2000s, social democratic parties from around the world, we came together. You had the Clintons, you had the Blairs, you had, you know, Schroeder and, and lots of leaders from around the world from opposition and in power. And they met every single year. And not only did we deliver fairness and equality in our economy and society domestically, you know, together we worked together to deliver it around the world globally. We cancelled third world debt. You know, we delivered, you know, via that, liberating policies via working globally in terms of the equality agenda. So we did an incredible amount working together. So it's not just a question of just trying to win elections together. What we're trying to do is actually figure out how we can re rekindle the spirit that we had in those days so that we can work together f to be a force for good around the world. Because lots of our sister parties are fighting populism domestically, which is very preoccupying. It can take up a lot of bandwidth and it can stop us strengthening our ties internationally. And we are an internationalist party and we've got to start learning those lessons as well. Peter, just following on from the Fringe event the other day about uh, how Labour is going to deal with Brexit going forward, how well do you think Keir navigated the issue of Brexit by effectively saying what were the root causes for people voting for Brexit, deal with those, focus on those rather than rehash the, the referendum itself? He's right, but I think what was important about the way he tackled it in his speech today was that the accusation is he doesn't mention the word Brexit. You know, in, this, in one sentence, he said it about five times. So that in itself just shows he's not scared of, of talking about it. But me personally, I just want to talk it in the context of the future. There is no post-Brexit Brexit Britain. It's just the future. And people want the rowing to stop. And they want us to set out a vision of a better Britain. And there is a competing vision for that, which is rooted in Brexit ideology. And we need to have the space to set out our stool, which is a competing vision from them. So I think, actually, we didn't really need what Keir said in terms of policy today. We needed it in terms of context to show that he wasn't scared of putting it in the context of the post-Brexit world. But I think the really important things that we spoke about today was how we're going to tackle energy security, how we're going to tackle redistribution in the economy, how are we going to tax fairly, spend wisely. You know, these are the key things that we're going to do about going to the future. And each and every one of those plays into life beyond Brexit. You know, you know where I stood on Brexit. You know, I put my heart and soul into it. But it's wasted energy to describe life into the future in the context of Brexit. You know, we just have to talk about it in, in terms of the future and if we do so, we can talk about rebuilding our country domestically. And then we can't go to countries around the world and say, hey, we're back until they see us really tackling ourselves and getting our house in order domestically. And then we need to put trust back in our relationships internationally. And then we need to make sure that those relationships, whether they be trading with the single market, new freedoms for citizens, wherever they are around the world, exploring our potential in terms of trading and travel uh, and lots of different partnerships. But it's got to be rooted in the 2020s going forward. The EU has moved on in loads of ways since we left. Our language and our scale of ambition 
as Britain in our relationship with the EU and other countries has got to be also moving on as well. So at the end of Keir's speech as well, he invited us to think about kind of what we would have achieved after the first term of a Labour government. I just wanted to kind of know for your departments, say that you stick with your individual briefs um, at the moment, what you just expect us to kind of have achieved in, in, the, in those five years? In some ways, my answer to that is really easy because it's been spelled out so much over the last few days of conference. And, and we're in a really fortunate position as a team, you know, in being an Ed Middlebands team, that we've actually had that funded envelope identified, the £28 billion over at least till 2030, I think. But in some cases, like with retrofit and that beyond that, assuming we get a second term. So I would hope that we would be well on our way to... more confidence, please. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Um, but yeah, I would hope that we would be well on our way to, you know, having set up GB Energy, to be doing that retrofitting, to be achieving clean, you know, some of the quite short-term goals in a way, you know, clean power by 2030. We, we need to get moving on that as soon as possible. But I think also, you know, stepping back up to the plate in terms of that global leadership. So we've heard that Liz Truss isn't even going to COP27 in in Sharm el-Sheikh later this year, and despite the fact that we've still got the presidency. I would hope that Ed Miliband and and Kira's leader would be really in the forefront of pushing that climate change agenda. And Peter, will you finally finally fix the Northern Ireland Protocol? Well, for me, we forget the the word protocol um, and that Northern Ireland can can move forward. I, I want Stormont up and running, both the executive and the assembly. But crucially, politics has got to become functional again. We can only do that if the uh, Irish-UK government in Westminster, the two governments are working together, the trust is restored, there is a framework uh, that is foundation that is strong enough to build prosperity, peace and progress in Northern Ireland. But culturally, I hope after five years that once again residents in Northern Ireland can feel British, feel Irish, and it's not their overriding concern every day. That's becoming more of an issue. Identity is much more of an issue than ever has been for a generation. And if after five years, and I believe it can be done in five years, people are more concerned about their work, their relationships, their families, their communities, getting on with life, feeling that their life is committed to being in Northern Ireland and young people don't have to go to university elsewhere and they want to sort of escape sometimes the, the sense that cultural issues are just overwhelming sometimes. Those are the things we can do, I think, in one, one term. Progress can be delivered very rapidly, but it has to be a choice and we need to get the, the basics right. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day-a-week newsletters by clicking the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks again to my fantastic guests, Peter Kyle and Kerry McCarthy, as well as my Paul Home colleague, Caitlin Doherty. Our editor today was Laura Silver. Thanks to you all for listening, but more importantly, thanks to everyone who came to watch us show live. Please subscribe to us, if you haven't already, I know you probably already have, to our podcast and leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us at via news at politicshome.com. But be sure again to listen next week. We'll be bringing our second live podcast, but this time from the Conservative Party Conference in Birmingham. Please don't boo. Um, <laughs> Uh, But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst, and this has been The Rundown.